Am I on? There we go. Let me pray for us. Man, I, was, I just love that, that transition of prayer for our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka and the Lord's Prayer and singing that song. I just want to, can we just, Lord, we just say thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for you, Jesus. And we just ask that your kingdom would continue to be declared across this world, in Sri Lanka and here in this place. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today we're talking about Jesus. Um, I'm sure you came to church and probably if you put money on that, you can get your money in. This is what we're talking about today. Um, I can't help it. I really like Jesus. Um, you know, there are historical figures that have shaped history. Um, people like Julius Caesar and um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Dolly Parton. That's for you, babe. Um, a lot of Dolly love around our house. Um, and no one's going to deny that Jesus uh, is a religious figure that has shaped uh, human history and certainly Western civilization in, in very profound ways. Um, and of course, the Christian movement that bears his name. And so for many people, the question uh, is, who was Jesus? And for those of us who believe in Easter, the question has and continues to be, who is Jesus? And today, I want us to spend our time in a familiar passage, and I, I kind of thought, is this just too familiar? But I couldn't help myself. I just wanted to be in this text, and this is Matthew 16. Um, and so turn with me to Matthew 16 in your Bibles, and I'm going to be reading for us verses uh, 13 through 18. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And um, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Christian is the person who shares Peter's confession, right, and becomes a follower of Jesus, and flesh and blood doesn't reveal this. Um, go ahead and take some of the pressure off. Good parenting doesn't reveal the true identity of Jesus. Seminary doesn't reveal the true identity of Jesus. The Father in heaven is the one who does this. So anytime that confession is, is real and genuine in a human heart, it's because the Father in heaven has made his true identity known to you. Um, consider this statement with me by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, we're bound together by faith, not experience. Speaking of Christians, the object of our faith is the one God, known to us as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, revealed to us perfectly in the person of Jesus, the Son, Jesus uh, has the church, right? The church belongs to Jesus. That doesn't come as a surprise to any of you. But at the same time, uh, Jesus belongs to the church. Where do I get that? Well, lots of places, but I, I like to think of, you know, maybe Ephesians 5 and the marriage language there, that uh, Jesus is the husband of the church, his bride. And just as uh, the bride belongs to her husband, the husband belongs to his bride, right? 
And all this is meant to set up the question of today, which is, who is Jesus? Because there are really two answers to that question. There's your personal answer, and there's our answer. There's your individual answer that you and only you can give of who Jesus is, and there is our answer that we, the church, must offer to heaven and to the earth. And so let's come back to this, this passage, verses 13 and 14. I'll read it again. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They answered, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Um, when we consider the question of who Jesus is, there's answers in society. And I think it's interesting that Jesus thinks it actually is important that his followers know what society is saying about him. Um, and we could do this in our day, too. Just a stroll through, you know, Publix and the magazines that are there for you to buy, I think give a fascinating sampling of what the world thinks about Jesus. You know, this, this one, for example, says, Jesus, man of history, figure of faith. And this is a good example of how the world, when it looks at Jesus, it kind of divides Jesus into two categories. So there's the Jesus of faith, and that's the Jesus that you Christians worship, and it's cute. You believe that he did all these things from these ancient texts, and we'll let you have that, that Jesus of faith. And, but if we're going to talk about the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, well, then we need to rescue him from the trappings of all of this superstition and all this faith and find out who he really is based on things like, you know, architecture. I mean, um, um, like digs, not architecture, but archaeology and architecture, maybe. Um, and the ways that the culture was in that time, and that'll kind of tell us who Jesus really is. Um, of course, Jesus hears his disciples' response of how society thinks about Jesus, and then he says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus hears the way his disciples respond to his question of how people, how society is talking about him. Some say you're this, Jesus. Some say you're that. And then he says, but who do you say I am? And of course, Peter jumps up and he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And as important as personal faith is, we evangelicals love to make a huge deal about the personal faith of Peter in this passage. Um, when Peter steps forward and says, you, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And I think that, unfortunately, an, an overemphasis on personalizing faith combined with the failings of the church in this day and age has caused a lot of people in my generation and also the generation behind me to adopt an attitude that basically sounds something like, hey, don't get me wrong, I'm all about Jesus, but I'm just done with the church. I mean, Jesus is cool, but... I'm done with the church, right? Forget the church, but follow Jesus, man. Jesus is, is pretty awesome, but I just don't have time for the church anymore. Um, and so Jesus is cool, right? <laughs> I think if you talk to people about Jesus, uh, very few people are, are down on Jesus in society these days. Even among, you know, Christian millennials and, and Gen Z, you don't find too many people just trashing Jesus. But it's because they kind of have a Jesus in their image, a Jesus that they like, and it's a Jesus that they think they can divorce from the church. 
And ironically, evangelicals uh, make such a big deal about the, the personal faith of Peter in a passage like this one in particular. Um, and in a sad turn of events, it really distorts the full meaning of the passage, and it really distorts the question Jesus is asking in this text when he says, who do you say that I am? Because it's got to be pointed out that Jesus doesn't ask Peter a personal question. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am, the you in the sentence is in the plural, not in the singular. He doesn't say, who do you say that I am, Peter? What do you think, Peter? What do you think about me? He's talking to a group of his would-be followers and says, who do you guys think I am? Who do you think I am? Jesus is after a community which is after his name. And I think this is confirmed by the fact that Jesus goes on to say that upon your confession, Peter, I'm going to build my church, my assembly, my gathering, worshiping people and witnesses in the earth. That's what this is about, Peter. Yeah, Peter speaks for himself when he says this, but he also speaks for his believing friends. And ultimately, he speaks for the church. So the story can't be reduced to simply a story about the importance of personal faith. So here's my point, and this, by the way, flies in the face of popular Christian spirituality. I realize that. It's not enough for you all on your own to have an answer to the who is Jesus question. You need to answer this question in community. That's a major part of what this passage is about. And we miss that when we make it all about Peter's personal faith response. The setting matters tremendously. I mean, Jesus doesn't whisk Peter away one night and in hushed tones say, Peter, who do you say that I am, Peter? We almost read this story as evangelicals as though Jesus asked this question of Peter while he was stranded on a desert island. And that's like all that matters. Nor does Jesus in the story go from disciple to disciple and say, who do you think I am, Andrew? Who do you think I am, John? Who do you think I am, Peter? Jesus is asking the question of a group of people who are would-be followers of him in the earth. That's what it's about. Um, at the same time, it's also not enough for Christian communities to have an answer to the who is Jesus question on their website, but lack people who really believe it. Right? Faith is personal and faith is communal. Let me say that again. Faith is personal and faith is communal. One more time for good measure. <laughs> faith is personal and faith is communal. So the question, who is Jesus, is both your individual question that you and only you can answer, and it is our question that the church and only the church can answer. That's how this question confronts us of who Jesus is. And Peter's response is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's the Christ, he, which comes from the Greek word Christos, which translates the Hebrew word Mashiach, which in English we pronounce Messiah. He is the long-awaited Savior and Redeemer of Israel. He's the long-awaited Savior and Redeemer of the world, it turns out. And he's the son of the living God. He is God. He is Man, he is united to the Father, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, yet distinct from both. And as Christians, we are those who confess that Jesus is this Messiah and the Son of the living God. 
And as we experience Jesus as Messiah and Son of the living God, that's where it gets a little interesting, isn't it? Because you and I may and often are drawn to different things about who Jesus is as Messiah and Son of the living God. The Holy Spirit shows you things about who Jesus is that I haven't seen yet, right? There's ways in which you may be moved by Jesus in ways that I've yet to be moved by Jesus or vice versa. Um, You're drawn to certain things about Jesus in large part because your personality pushes you in that direction. Just honestly. Um, And there may be certain things about Jesus that you gravitate towards because of like life experiences you've had, or maybe spiritual experiences or encounters that you have uh, cause you to gravitate towards certain aspects of of who Jesus is. Um, And because of that, the things that I and you uh, most admire about Jesus, it's going to, to some degree, differ from person to person. And not only do I believe that that is okay, I actually believe it's necessary for the body of Christ to function in a healthy way. And if you don't believe me, um, I'm going to show you how this is exactly what you do. So I sent a text out to a group of people uh, in this church among you, because faith is personal and faith is communal, and I want to practice what I'm preaching right now. And the text basically said this, um, what is Jesus like, and what do you most admire about him? You want to hear what people at Fullness said? Tom Kimma said, Jesus is just like the exact representation of God the Father. Perfectly good, wise, loving, powerful, holy. What I admire most about Jesus is his willingness to lay down, give up his life, to do the will of the Father. He lived totally selflessly. He did nothing of his own initiative. He only did what he saw the Father doing. Eric Bischoff said, All mankind has had a rich history of using knowledge selfishly. Jesus is the only person worthy to open the scroll in Revelation, worthy to know. So when I don't know, I can be okay because he does. Wendy Kuhn said, Jesus was fully human in body, mind, emotions, yet sinless. His humanity makes his unconditional love and mercy, his kindness and goodness, all the more remarkable. I most admire his steadfastness in all things. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love and mercy never cease. The hope he gives is a sure and steadfast anchor for my soul. Paul Hughes said, Jesus is beautifully right and true in all he is and does. I love how he consistently reveals God as Father. Larry Powell said, I sometimes think of Jesus as my best friend that I may see a lot, but I know that he's always available when I need him. Things I admire about him are the fact that he is a good and patient listener and always responds to my issues or concerns in a manner that's full of grace and without condemnation. Morgan Mundy said, Jesus is loving, strong, gracious, humble, and right. The thing I most admire is his humility. It overwhelms me to think of who he is and how he relates to us. Jen Ridley said, He is perfect love that truly casts out every ounce of fear and worry. Being in his presence and with him and in him is to know deep peace, hope, and everlasting security. 
It's the cozy, safe place of true home, the very essence of true acceptance and belonging. Scott Shoup said, I'm so grateful that Jesus loves me in spite of me. I admire him for his relentless intercession for me and pleading his blood that still speaks a better word. So these are testimonies of people that have been drawn to certain aspects of who Jesus is, right? And again, not only do I think that's okay, I think that's beautiful. I think that's what makes the mosaic of the church a true witness because we're encountering the different aspects of who Christ is. I mean, I think if you ask me what I most admire about Jesus, it would probably be the fact that being God, he came and served sinners and continues to do that. And that's not a past tense thing. Um, and that's what strikes me most about, about Jesus. Um, so here's a picture of a Bible. As we talk about uh, who Jesus is, it's important that although we recognize, hey, there's going to be certain things that, that draw you to Jesus that don't draw me. There's certain ways that you're moved by Jesus that I've yet to be moved by. There's revelation you have of Jesus that I've yet to have revelation of. Um, that doesn't mean that we can pick and choose a version of Jesus that suits us, right? Uh, so, like, accept certain things or just reject other things. This is a Bible that belonged to one of our forefathers, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and Jefferson decided, I need to find a Jesus that I can live with. So he took a razor blade and took his razor blade to the Gospels and to the New Testament and, uh, and did just that. You may say, well, at least he left most of it. Actually, that's what he rejected. Um, so what he cut out is what he liked about Jesus. And so he took those little cutouts and... He literally glued them to his own Bible of a Jesus that he could live with. Um, Jefferson said that he cut the diamonds of Christ's teaching out of the dunghill of the New Testament. Yay! Um, so here's a guy named Albert Schweitzer. Let me talk to you about him. I love Albert Schweitzer's story. Um, so in the, uh, in the 19th century, that's the 1800s, I never could figure that one out, to like age 25. Uh, in, in the 1800s, uh, there was a movement among uh, scholars in mostly Europe and European universities in which they were, they were kind of saying, look, we've got to recover the real Jesus from the trappings of faith and, and you know, Christianity, and we've got to find the real historical Jesus. And so there were all of these works of Christ that were put out of the real Jesus, and each, each scholar was saying, I found him, I found the real Jesus. And this went on for about the better part of a century, about 75 years. And towards the beginning of the, the 20th century, Albert Schweitzer came along and he, he painstakingly read about 200 of these works on the life of Christ. Of the, finally, we've discovered the real historical Jesus. And he like, categorically showed, like book by book by book, how all these scholars were doing was recreating a Jesus in their own image. So if they were like a kind of high-cultured, you know, individual in society, they depicted this sophisticated Jesus with a cigar in his mouth and a top hat. I'm being a little facetious, but that's the idea. Or if they were kind of into whatever movement in society, that's, or with the problems of society or whatever their answers to the problems of society were, that's the historical Jesus that they were able to present. And Schweitzer said, all you've done is just recreated a Jesus in your own image. You haven't found the historical Jesus. 
Um, and his work was like groundbreaking. It just crushed 75 years of Jesus scholarship. He, Schweitzer was to uh, these scholars what Redbox was to Blockbuster Video. He just decimated them, or what streaming is about to be to Redbox for that matter. Um, there was like nothing left in, in his wake afterwards. Um, but what the, these kind of scholars were doing in the 19th century is the same thing we do all the time in a popular level, right? It's just created Jesus in our own image. How many of y'all remember the, the prayer from the great Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights? Who does he address his prayer to? Baby Jesus. So, uh, you know, he, he just really liked the Christmas Jesus, Will Ferrell's character in uh, Talladega Nights. And so he just, he's like, I like the Christmas Jesus. And so he, he was like, dear sweet baby Jesus, you know, we asked for you to do this and this. And the people at the table are like, you know, he grew up. Like, he had a beard. Um, he's like, hey, when, I, when I'm saying grace, I'll say grace. I want to say grace. When you talk to Jesus, you can talk to Jesus. How you want to talk to Jesus? And his kid jumps in. He's like, I like to think of Jesus as a ninja. And uh, it's just like, to me, I love that scene. By the way, actually, I should say, um, if you haven't seen that movie, you're still on the path of righteousness. Um, in fact, I'm going to go evoke our uh, non-endorsement policy right now. I was a little late on that. Sorry, Pastor Bart. Um, but we, uh, we do this, right? This is what we do. We just kind of create this Jesus that suits us, that is, a, is pleasing to us. Um, I was uh, doing a stint at Starbucks a few years ago, and um, I remember one day there was a, well, there was a guy that, that worked there, and he was doing really well. He was, he was a barista, and he looked like he was probably about to get promoted, and life was going good. And it, suddenly, like, his life just kind of started falling apart, and it was really sad, and like, his girlfriend, like, uh, broke up with him and moved out of his apartment, and he was just depressed, and he was, like, not making it to work, and um, he was late, like, several times within, like, two weeks, and um, I remember one day, like, it was a really busy shift, and we were all, he had, was super late, and we were all frustrated at him, actually, because we were barely making it, and he came in, like, an hour and a half late, and the manager just said, basically, I don't even want to look at you, go in the back and do dishes, and um, so he goes in the back and starts, like, just furiously, like, doing dishes, and he was really just mad at himself. He wasn't blaming other people. He was just like, what's my problem? Why can't I keep it together? And um, I was in the back on my 10-minute break while he was doing dishes, and I could tell he was just really upset, and um, he's just doing dishes and frustrated, and he, he looks over at me, and he says, you're a pastor, right? I thought, uh, this could be good or bad. I don't know. Um, I said, yeah. And he said, why does God hate me? What makes you think that? Well, I just feel like everything in my life was going good and going well, and then suddenly, like, my girlfriend moved out, and I just couldn't, like, keep it together at work, and I just feel like everything's falling apart, and I guess God hates me. I don't know what else to say. And I said, well, you know, sometimes I think it's easy for us to think of God as a fixer, and that God's just kind of there to, like, to fix our, our problems. And he interrupted me and said, oh, no, 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 I know God's not a fixer. God's there to give you advice so that you can better yourself. And I thought, if that's not the popular American view of God, I don't know what is. God's just kind of there to give you little nuggets of advice to better yourself. So you can just kind of be the best you, right? And God's basically this, this cosmic self-help guru or counselor that exists so that you can hopefully take his advice and better yourself. And if you don't, well, then that's on you. And that's kind of who God is. God and, and Christ, they're, they're not a TED Talk presenter. 
Jesus isn't someone with good ideas worth spreading. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think Jesus has great ideas, and I think we should spread them. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he's more than that. He, he's God. He, he's either your master and Lord or not. You're either his servant and disciple or not. You know, I think that God's presence and Jesus' presence certainly can feel mysterious and, and obscure sometimes in our life, and especially when it seems like just things aren't going according to your plan, like with this guy. Um, and I, I love the stories. You know, we just had Easter last week, and I want to kind of live, continue living Holy Week for a moment. Um, by the way, do you all love Holy Week? I thought those services were so beautiful together. Um, I love the stories after the resurrection where Jesus is meeting with different people because there's this common thread that runs in between them. Um, so I think of the story with Mary Magdalene where Jesus is standing in front of her. She doesn't know it's Jesus, and she's looking for Jesus. And she is, thinks this guy's the gardener, right? Because she's in the garden tomb where Jesus was raised. And she says, tell me where they put his body. And it's not until Jesus speaks her name and says, Mary, that she realizes this is Jesus. I've been looking for him, and he was here the whole time. Or that, that scene where the two guys are walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus kind of scoots up next to him and just kind of continues on with him, and, and their hearts are burning within them for hours as Jesus opens up the scriptures and the truth of why the Messiah had to come and die, and they still don't even know it's him, even though they're, they're feeling all this stuff. And it's not until they arrive at their destination, right? Remember, what did Jesus do? He broke the bread, which is a picture of the revelatory power of communion to reveal Christ. And it's in that moment that they realize, oh my gosh, we've been with Jesus the whole time. Or, or that scene where the disciples are back at work, right? Back on the job, on the Sea in Galilee. And um, Jesus appeared to them once or twice. And they're about 100 meters offshore trying to catch some fish. And Jesus stands on the shore and they can't recognize him. He says, have you caught anything? No. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. and See what happens. And their net fills with fish. And then John says, it's the Lord. Suddenly Jesus does something that, it's this Jesus kind of stuff. We've seen this before, and we realize he's here. And this is how Jesus is experienced in my life 99.9% .9 of the time, is I'm doing ordinary things in ordinary ways. I'm in my garden, in my backyard, like Mary. I'm um, on I-65. I'm on the road somewhere. I'm at work, and suddenly Jesus is here. That's how Jesus meets with us. And rarely do I experience him in extraordinary ways. Um, but I do want to share a testimony of an, an event when I was 16 that, that changed my life, um, if I can. So when I was 16, I was here at the Fullness Youth Group, and we, as a youth, went to a conference called Joshua Revolution at the BJCC. And I remember at one point... Uh, I was in the back of the room, and, and I just felt this, like, urge to go up to, like, the worship mosh pit at the front. And if you know me, you know I live for mosh pits. I'm totally joking. I, it was super uncomfortable. Um, and so I, I went up to the front, and I was, of course, standing there like this, and uh, all these people were jumping around me, and, um, and I heard the Lord clearly say, close your eyes and walk. And so I thought, this is a terrible idea, given my environment. Um, 
I'm surely like inviting a punch to the face. Uh, but I did. I, I closed my eyes, and I just started walking like this. And, um, and I took about 50 steps. Like, I walked for a while just with my eyes closed. And, and then I heard the Lord say, stop. And I stopped, and my eyes still closed. And then when I stopped, I saw this, this picture in my mind of Jesus in front of me. Um, and he was just looking at me with these just incredible eyes of love. And then in this picture in my mind, uh, he just reached forward and just gently stroked my cheek. And, and then, again, he gently just stroked my cheek, just looking at me with just these eyes of love. And then I, I felt something physically touch my cheek. And my eyes shot open, and I realized that I'd stopped right in front of the, the curtain that walled off the conference area. And so I closed my eyes again, and, and I just saw Jesus there before me again, just looking at me, just those eyes of love, and just gently stroking my cheek, and now uh, stroking my cheek in sync with this curtain, just gently brushing up against my cheek. And it was just this beautiful moment, this tangible moment even, of the love of Jesus looking at me and touching me and loving me. And after about five minutes of just drinking in his presence, I said, Jesus, touch me. And as I did, a gust of wind blew the curtain around my head and just tore away, and I was just almost breathless. And, and then again, I just had my eyes closed, just there, Jesus, before me, looking at me, just lavishing his affection on me and just gently stroking my cheek with the curtain brushing up against my cheek. I'd never felt love like that. And, and then about another five minutes of this, a second time, I said, Jesus, touch me. And then the curtain again just blew around my head. And I don't know if there was a fan behind that curtain. I don't even care. I don't even care. I didn't investigate it. Um, I just know from then on, everything was different. From then on, Jesus was real in such a profound way. Um, and my, my call to you guys is remember the things God has done in you. The experiences you have with the Lord whether corporately when the bread was broken here or on your own or, or times that maybe you were reading the Gospels and suddenly by the power of the Holy Spirit you realized, I'm the leper Jesus has healed. I'm a part of the 5,000 that Jesus feeds and provides for. I'm, I'm a part of that culture that when given the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, cries out, give us Barabbas. I'm, I'm standing next to Peter declaring, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I love this quote by Augustine. St. Augustine said, and this is said as spoken as a prayer to the Lord, since the time that I learned of you, you remain in my memory, and there I find you when I recall you and delight in you. Sometimes I'll do that. I'll, um, I'll go into my memory and find God in my memories with him. And you may say, Gabriel, you're living in the past. Well, if God's timeless, then why is it so bad to find God in my memory? Because the moment I find him in my memory, I have him in the present. Um, Augustine's prayer really resonates with me. And don't get me wrong, I want fresh encounters with the living God, right? I want to experience God th this afternoon in a fresh and new way. Um, but think about it. If you or I experience God tomorrow afternoon, for example, the, the power of that experience need not die there. 
it, it can live on in your memory um, because God is timeless. He's, he's, your story is alive. It's not this, this dead thing that's lost to history, right? Um, and I, I think that this is so beautiful when we consider God this way. Our encounters with God, our story with God is living, right? I mean, I've long since forgotten exactly what Jesus' face looked like now, 16 years ago, when I stood in front of that curtain. But I'll often go back to that memory and recall that memory and find God in that memory. And I don't think, and I would say this, I don't think what's happening in that moment is I'm just reminiscing. I actually think I'm encountering the living God. He's timeless. And I'll agree with Augustine that, God, you remain in my memory, and there I find you, when I recall you and delight in you. Um, you have a story in God. And there are, there are moments in your spiritual journey where you were looking for Jesus and suddenly he spoke your name. And you realized he's been here the whole time. You were, you were driving down I-65. You were on Euromaeus Road or going through a difficult season of life. And suddenly you realized Jesus has been here the whole time. <laughs> right? Or you're, you're at work. You're on the job, like the disciples, catching fish again, and suddenly Jesus is in the office or with you chasing toddlers, whatever it may be. Um, And I want to end, I know I'm going a little long today, um, with these words from 1 Corinthians 13. How do you talk about who is Jesus in 25 minutes? um, So thanks for bearing with me. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 says this, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. But when the perfect comes, uh, I put that in there twice. <laughs> when, I was like a child, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Um, so Paul talks about, real quick, I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Paul talks about these three spiritual gifts, right? Prophecy, tongues, which in this context I think we can assume are interpreted tongues for the body, and knowledge, which has to do with uh, words of knowledge and spiritual knowledge that is to be shared with the body of Christ for their edification. And so prophecy and tongues and, and gifts of knowledge, in this context, they function um, as ways to kind of, these function as like stop gaps between what little we know about God and Christ and what's left to be known. And they kind of give us a little bit more understanding. But Paul says, even this is so partial. Even this is, uh, as Paul says, like looking in a mirror dimly. Um, and, but we have them. We're grateful for these gifts because they give us a little bit more understanding. But Paul says, here's what we're like with gifts of prophecy and gifts of knowledge and all this stuff. We're like children who are just struggling to comprehend ideas. We're like children who struggle to reason through things, right? So Paul says that, um, let me go back to this verse. Uh, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Um, Paul's saying, look, children have less ability to think 
in reasonable ways. This, as your, if your parents, this doesn't uh, come as a surprise to you, right? But I want to go to the zoo. Like, I want to go and you have the means to take me. What am I missing here, right? Like, that's basically as far as their reasoning abilities go. Um, so, like, but, and that's actually, um, that's scientifically true, right? The, the prefrontal cortex is a little science moment, which is responsible for decision-making and rational ability, isn't fully developed in the human brain until age 25. So, modern science is caught up to uh, Apostle Paul. Um, and so he's saying, but, but when I became a man, I could think and reason better. I could comprehend more things. And Paul's saying, that's what we will be. Right now, we're these children struggling to com- comprehend who God is. And this so resonates with me, because the more I learn, the more I consider God, the more I pray, and the more I experience him, the less I feel like I understand him. Like, I, I went to Bible college and thought I knew something, and then I went to seminary and was depressed because I realized I knew nothing. That was my experience of seminary. Um, and this is what Paul's saying, though. Like, it's okay. Um, you know, our, Paul uses this image, this analogy of a mirror, and this analogy, unfortunately, is kind of lost on all of us because our mirrors are pretty good. Um, our mirrors basically show us exactly what our reflection looks like. Um, but the mirrors in the ancient world were not um, the mirrors we have. They gave a very poor, dim reflection of yourself, of a face. And this is what Paul's saying, that right now we see Jesus. We see him dimly. We have a poor picture, but we will see him fully. We will see him at the end of the age and we'll know fully. I was really moved by this quote from Pastor Bart um, a few weeks ago. He talked about this man, Michael Gerson, who uh, spoke at uh, the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and he talked about his lifelong struggle with depression. And he said this, At the end of all our striving and longing, we find not a force, but a face. And this is so core to the Christian message. That at the end of the day, we're not powering through a tough week because of this universal force that we've tapped into. It's not the Christian message. Um, Our hope is that God has taken on our form, our face, and we see him now, albeit in a mirror dimly, but we see the face of Christ. You know, Jesus at, at Matthew 28 said, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. You have a picture of the face of Christ now. You can see it, but our destiny is to see him fully, face to face. So the question of, of who is Jesus is our destiny to answer and to know for all eternity. If I can, let me close out the service. I just want to pray for us. Can we stand? Um, If I give an altar call for who wants to know Jesus better, we might all be up here. So uh, can we just stretch our hands out? I just want to pray for us. In a posture to receive. Hmm. Jesus, we know that you are asking now, as you always have been, Who do people say that I am? Who do my people say that I am? And also, individually, to each of our hearts, who do you say that I am? And God, I ask that you would, even as we consider Matthew 16, Father, you, not flesh and blood, but you, reveal the identity of Christ. So, Father, we ask that you would 
Show us your Son. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to to see and know and savor Jesus in a fresh and powerful way. Even though all of us are like kids, thinking like children, looking in a dim mirror to find Jesus, even with prophetic gifts and, and, and all the rest, we're still like children in this age, Lord. And every glimpse we see of you, Jesus, is profound, is powerful, Lord. It changes us. It empowers us to live for you in this world. So, Lord, we ask for more glimpses of you, Jesus, of who you are, that we would bear your image, Lord, we'd be conformed to your image increasingly in this life, Lord. And God, I thank you that our destiny is to see you face to face, to know you fully, Lord, even as you fully know us now. We bless you, Lord. Bless these people, Lord. I ask that each heart in this room be just given a gift of your grace to see Jesus more. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday.